A federal appeals court ruling calls the nonviolent felon gun ban into question. Plus, National Review's Jim Garrity on President Biden's poorly performing pistol bracement. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. All right. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also the founder of TheReload.com, where you can head over and sign up for our free weekly newsletter if you want to keep up to date with what's going on with guns in America. This week, we are talking about the pistol brace ban and its impacts, or lack thereof, with uh, National Review and uh, The Washington Post's uh, Jim Garrity. Jim, how, how are you doing? Stephen, it's good to see you again. Uh, thanks very much for having me. I did not have a chance to see you at the NRA annual meeting this year, uh, and I feel I, I feel, like I I feel lesser for that for that absence. I feel like there's been uh, something missing there. Yeah, so yeah, good we to see didn't you again. get to go and hang out at the what Max and Izzy's is that it the the steakhouse there? You and I have hung out in both some very fine steakhouses and some whatever was open in the hotel level restaurants, <laughs> you know, or whatever's <laughs> open at this hour uh, kind of restaurants in in all kinds yeah. of cities across the United United States. Yes, that is the life of a, a writer who has mm. to cover conferences that move all around the country. Mm. Um, but yes, welcome to the show. It's been a little while since we had you on. Uh, you're one of my favorite writers that. At National Review, and and now you're a, was it a contributing contributing uh, columnist? Contributor? Yes, yeah. contributing columnist. Okay, there's always we always have to respect the names. I'm a contributor for CNN, right? I, That's right. I, very, yeah. I guess I don't do a column for them. So it, it means we catch um, only a little bit of the mainstream media cooties. You know, right, but, uh, we, right. we still have some. Hopefully, still have some street cred on the conservative right. Uh, but also we're, we're housebroken. We don't pee on the carpet anymore. We are acceptable <laughs> in, uh, and you know, I like it being able to have one foot in both worlds and hopefully uh, speak to both worlds. Although I guess yeah. will tell. And hopefully give different, different perspectives. You know, that's, that's what I believe hmm. in trying to, trying to yeah. bring, bring uh, different perspectives to people, give them as much information as possible, regardless of where they're, they're going to get that information. So, um, but this week where we got, uh, the fallout of the pistol brace ban from President Biden. We had the uh, the grace period to register your your brace equipped firearms has now ended last week, and we have some numbers from the ATF on how many people actually complied with this ban. Keep in mind that if you don't comply, if you don't register, that you could face potentially a federal felony charge, which carries up to 10 years in federal prison. Um, and I think that's a key point because not very many people did comply, is the bottom line. The ATF said there were about 255,000 uh, applications for registration of braced firearms in the four-month period that they let people do that tax-free, by the way, as a sort of incentive to try and get as many people to comply as possible. However, that probably sounds like a lot, but the estimates from the ATF are that there are between three and 10 million pistol braces that were sold in the 10 years that the ATF had said they were uh, not NFA items, not, you know, that you could have them without registering them. And uh, the Congressional Research Service, which does kind of what the name implies, they do a lot of research for Congress, um, they estimated there are between 10 and 40 million of these devices out there. So, 
the registration rate was somewhere between 0.6, that's 0.6%, and 8%. So less than, you know, more than 90% of people refused to comply with this in that allotted time period, and presumably now are overnight felons uh, in this case. What do you make of this? So it's not exactly shocking. Uh, in Amongst gun owners in the Second Amendment community, for lack of a better term, there's always been this perception that any form of gun registration, or I guess in this case, you know, particular gun part registration, was a precursor to uh, confiscation. That once the government knows where all the guns are, someday, you know, maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but at some point down the road, uh, the government would decide, you know what, we've decided firearm, the, the Second Amendment doesn't mean anything, and we don't believe that there should be private ownership of firearms, and we're coming for your guns. Uh, or maybe only certain types of guns or something like that. But someday what you had and was legal would then be illegal and the government would come to take it away. Right. And oh, just just real quick, sure. that's not an unreasonable no. <laughs> no. thought, right? I yeah. mean, I, I know this gets brought up a lot um, outside of conservative media and, and it, there's a lot of critiques of this cons- of this this argument because it's a very common one in, in program circles. But I mean, you can look anywhere in the world, and that's something you see even today. I mean, even just look north in Canada, where they are using their registry of uh, certain kinds of guns, which they have now made illegal to possess, to go around and take them from people. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, so Steve, it's, we hear versions of this. No one's coming for your gas stoves, you crazy, paranoid right-wingers. And then, you know, about a month later, they started introducing legislation to ban gas stoves. Um you know, no one's going to be tearing down statues of the founding fathers, you nut jobs. And then they start tearing down statues of the founding fathers. All kinds of ideas that seem crazy uh, from progr- and unthinkable from progressives that conservatives start objecting to are, are denounced as crazy conservative paranoia right up until the day it becomes reality. And then it becomes, oh, self-evident. We should be doing these sorts of things. Um, so, yeah, I mean, look, there was always going to be a tough sell to America's gun-owning community. And, and I was also thinking about just how much, like... There is so much bad blood and so much history there that it's really hard to imagine Joe Biden or really almost any other Democratic president. Obama would have similar issues. Bill Clinton would have similar issues. It would have required like, I don't know, maybe somebody like John Bell Edwards, like a completely different Southern um, Democratic who, who had much more credibility on the gun issue to say, hey, we're enacting this new rule. We're not doing this as some step towards gun confiscation. We really think this is going to help make the country a safer place. There's just, you know, too much um, suspicion. There's there's just too many reasons for uh, whether it's Biden or Kamala Harris or any that that this administration doesn't want to protect your Second Amendment rights and that they don't mean what they say. And that I just it's very hard to imagine uh, any state where it would just require a completely different history to have a higher mm. level of compliance with a rule like this. Uh, the the yeah. trust isn't there. It, it, and it, you'd have to take steps to build that trust. And there's really very few signs that the Biden administration is even interested in trying to rebuild that trust. I, mean, I think that's true generally of uh, the Biden administration and um, trust among gun owners. And we'll get into some of that a little bit later too in the show. But but I do wonder if there's you know any politician that would achieve a much greater uh, you know, compliance rate, because you can look at the last administration, Donald Trump, very popular among uh, gun owners, uh, even still today. 
uh, has the support of the National mm. Rifle Association. Stocks, yeah. and we'll, that's that's some of the stuff we'll get into later yeah. as well. But but yeah, he, he, he th- this pistol brace band is really modeled off of his bump stock band, and the bump stock band was actually more severe because they didn't allow you to register those devices. They just said these are machine guns, which you can't um, you can't own. Civilians can't own new models of machine guns since 1986. You only own ones that were already registered before 86. Um, thanks to a, a Firearms Owner Protection Act, there was a, uh, a amendment to that law in the 80s that, that uh, banned new sales of fully automatic weapons. And even though the bump stock is literally a piece of plastic stock, similar in nature to the pistol brace, they do different things, of course, but they're, they're just pieces of plastic as they have no internal parts. They don't do, do anything on their own. You have to attach them to a firearm. For them to have any use, but um, they declared that was it was a device that would modify a semi-automatic into a fully automatic, and therefore was illegal to own, and it was always illegal to own, even when they said it was not illegal to own. Uh, and so you couldn't, you had no option but to turn them in or destroy them, and nobody turned them in essentially. You know, the ATF said at the time, basically nobody turned these in. Um, now they, I think it's, they're taking a, the agency, interestingly enough, is sort of taking a similar view of things today as they did after the bump stock ban, which is that there were other ways that people could comply with this, meaning that they could destroy, throw away the devices. Um, and so maybe people did that. We don't know. Uh, and there is no way to know that. Um, it's unlikely, I think, that most people destroyed their pistol braces or their their bump stocks but the atf has made no real effort to try and figure that out um this is a pseudo symbolic measure which is actually fairly common of these registration and confiscation acts in in america Um, but i do wonder yeah i mean trump did that and they didn't have any better compliance rate Mm. than than Biden's had here. That is a fair point. I I do kind of wonder if what we're seeing in in both of these, and in fact, in a whole bunch of efforts to uh, enact gun legislation or to change gun regulations, is a kind of a a pretty severe disconnect between the lawmakers actually making the laws at the level of the president or his cabinet or something like that. And in the actual, you know, Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms and Explosives, Mm. pardon me. We always forget the explosives because it's not in the the ATF. (laughs) Um, yes. all, you need all of them for a good time. No, I'm just kidding. Um, that the ATF, like, like this is really hard to enforce. It's not like they do an annual uh, bump stock or pistol brace census where they cover. Hi, I'm from the ATF. How many do you have in your house? You know, yeah, I don't think um, that would go over very well. One, it wouldn't go. You're right. One, you know, wouldn't go very well. But two, so like, you know, when, when they suddenly announce, hey, that there's anywhere from as you said, one estimate, three to 10 million, another estimate up to 40 million. We've right. just decided these are all illegal. So ATF, could you go around and make sure that every last one of these is, you know, either destroyed or confiscated? And the ATF, ATF we're chasing gun runners. We, we got a full plate of responsibilities and duties right now. We, we, we don't have time to go around. You know, we, we can send out the notice. We can tell people they can turn them in. They can get, as you said, you know, a couple, like 250,000 or so, mm-hmm. you know, like, they don't have the resources to go around to do this kind of stuff. And so they're kind of this like complete intellectual and, and kind of uh, pragmatic disconnect between the people who are saying, hey, what can we do about these uh, for, about gun violence and stop gun crimes and all that stuff? And the people who actually have to enforce the laws. 
And I assume somewhere in ATF or somewhere in the Department of Justice, somebody's saying, guys, this is not going to be realistic. We're not going to have the ability to do this. And it certainly seems like these, you know, those, those voices get ignored. Yeah, I, I do think that it's le- there legitimately is a disconnect between your average ATF agent and uh, both the political leadership of DOJ or the president and um, and even certain higher up officials in the ATF that run things like the determination branch, where they try to make determinations on whether something is affected by the National Firearms Act or by or or not, right? Which is where a lot of these controversies come out of, but. Um, because the, the National Firearms Act, you know, has a much higher standard of uh, regulation that you have to comply with in order to own one of those affected uh, devices or firearms. But, um, you know, I, and I think it's a good point, too, that, you know, you look at that that estimate range, right? Mm-hmm. Three million to 40 million. That's a big well, That range. means basically you have no idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> Nobody knows yeah. how many of these are actually out there. And so it is impossible to enforce in practice. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts on this, because I think oftentimes you'll see in the gun owning community a focus on like the black helicopters. They're going to go door to door. They're going to come uh, for, your, for your guns that way. And um, and I think that's not a very realistic view of how this stuff works in real life. Um, instead, what you will see is, is something like this or something like New York's SAFE Act, where they required registration for all of the um, AR-15s and other guns that were affected by that law, or New Jersey's magazine ban, where they lowered the magazine limit from 15 to 10 and then said anything that had more than 10, you can't possess anymore. It's illegal to possess. California has done similar moves with um, with other with AR-15s or certain styles of AR-15s. And all of these have very low compliance rates. Very, very few people actually will register or turn in their their affected devices or guns. New Jersey State Police, in fact, received exactly zero magazines during uh, when their magazine ban went into effect, which, you know, there were other ways to comply. Right. There's the same going back to what the ATF uh, has said in this case and the bump stock case. There are technically other ways to comply on sort of an honor system. But I think the real effect that these things have is uh, one that occurs over time. Because what the people you can force into compliance fairly easily are gun dealers, right? They're, they're licensed by the federal government. They have to, they have to, you know, report to the ATF and oversee, they're more strictly overseen, you know, that's easier to track what they're doing than it is the 45% of the country, 46% that has a gun in their home, right? Because you don't have enough actual officers to try and do that. But over time, you know, yeah, maybe they will never, they're never going to prosecute someone for owning a pistol brace unless it's usually, unless it's in connection with some other crime that those, that the person commits. This is how magazine bans get enforced or solvents bans get enforced in, in real life all the time. And, um, but Gradually over time, since you can't sell them and there's sort of something you can't openly talk about owning, they, they, the ban does have an effect. It just takes a long time to have it. Is that, I mean, how, what's your view on that? No, I, I think that's largely accurate. Um, I, I suspect there are a decent number of gun control advocates in the United States who would, who do wish they had the resources to do that. 
that, you know, someday we can have the confiscate the guns day and yeah. federal agents will span out all across the entire country, knock on Data doors works, yeah. and, you know, turn them in and, you know, things would go. You and I and the vast majority of Americans know that would go very, very badly, that, that many Americans would not give up their guns uh, easily or peacefully. And that that would turn out with a, you know, it would probably make Waco look like a tea party. Um but, you know, most my suspicion is the people who are in politics. First of all, you made reference to and I assume you talk to a great deal more uh, ATF agents than I do. But I assume if you, if you I know people who are in federal law enforcement and you do that because you you want to stop bad guys. You do that because you want to make the world a better place. You want to say, you know, protect people. Yeah. I, there are bad apples. Don't get me wrong. But by and large, these people get into this because they, they're willing to take risks. They're willing to risk their lives uh, because they believe there is value in enforcing the laws, which means they want to go after bad guys, right? They want to go after like genuinely threats to the community. The average law-abiding gun owner who owns something that is now become that was once legal and now becomes illegal, if it's not a real threat to other people, if he's not going to run around, you know, shooting somebody, they're not that into it. Um, they have to. They're, not, they're going to do their duty. They're not going to ignore the law, but they also that's not that's not what they set out to do. Whereas I think there are a lot of people um, on the left side of the spectrum who are very comfortable with the mess of federal laws, rules, and regulations that we have on guns and a whole bunch of other issues, where once they've decided you're a problem, you know, whether you're going to say you're an enemy of the state or you're simply a inconvenient person, with that old saying, you know, you show, I think it was, was it Stalin or something, you show me the, the man, I'll show you the felony or something like that. The idea that like, there are so many laws all over the place that everybody breaks the law in one way or another at some point, if it's, you know, a few miles over the speed limit or jaywalking or... Uh, removing the mattress from the, the mattress tag or whatever it is that you're breaking the law, they find you on that and then they prosecute you for that, even if that's almost never prosecuted. And they throw that onto whatever other criminal charges they want to do. And it's a way of having eight charges against a guy and eight you know, chances of convicting him as opposed to having two or three. Um, right. You know, so yeah, so I think that is a very real consequence of this. And it's not really the way our our lawmaking system under our constitution is set up. I believe that laws should be clear. Uh, I believe that having pages and pages of incomprehensible text uh, is a, an impediment to self-government. And it's one of those things where if you can't understand the law, then you don't really, you know, you're, uh, you may try to be a law, but when, you're, when you can break the law without knowing it, that's a real problem, right? And that's the sort of thing where I think that's, you know, most, I, I'd like to think most judges and juries would draw a distinction between that and deliberate law breaking. But right. sometimes they don't always and, do that. So, well, in this case, they actually have right. So we we have um, court rulings, injunctions that were issued right before this law went into effect, right? And much of the reason those injunctions have been issued is this is very similar to the the uh, the bump stock cases, which we've seen the Fifth Circuit and Sixth Circuit uh, block that um, executive action because of well, primarily interestingly not the second amendment not second amendment claims that are having success against these orders it's actually uh kind of what the, the principle that you're getting out there rule of lenity is what it's called in in court right where uh essentially if even the atf doesn't understand whether these things are legal or illegal or what they what law they are meant to fall under or how they're supposed to be regulated then they, you can't expect the average person to have that understanding either. And so the rule of lenity says that you need to, um, essentially, you can't charge that person criminally. 
I also, right. kind of in a case like this, where like, let's assume you've got your pistol brace and you're debating, should I destroy this, right? I, I have this, it was legal when I bought it. Now the government says it's illegal, but there's a whole bunch of file lawsuits filed. And in some cases we mm-hmm. have injunctions. You kind of figure at some point, this is going to end up before the Supreme Court. And maybe you right. look at the Supreme Court and you like your odds. You like the way that, you know, a 6-3 majority has been ruling lately. So do you destroy it? Because once it's destroyed, you can't undo that. You can't recreate it. And the question is, okay, do I destroy it or do I just put it aside for a while? Let's see how this legal fight shakes out. I would never encourage someone to, you know, deliberately violate the laws of our country. But I'm just saying that philosophy, I can understand. I can understand the idea of like, this is a law for now. I don't know if this law is going to stick around for very long. And I don't know if I want to give up something that could be ruled legal, you know, a year from now, two years from now, some point down the road. Yeah. And we we talked earlier about uh, how probably some of the people who didn't register their braced guns were simply people who hadn't even heard about mm. this whole situation. However, the people who have heard about this and are following it closely, I think it's reasonable to assume that many of them know about these lawsuits and that they're likely to succeed. Uh, and so that's probably part of why they haven't registered their, their guns. Um, in fact, and we can, we sort of know this already because these injunctions that were issued covered uh, the named plaintiffs in the case. And this caused a little bit of confusion about what that means because some of the named plaintiffs were gun rights groups. There was Farms Policy Coalition, Second Amendment Foundation and Gunners of America all were involved in cases that have gotten injunctions issued in the Fifth Circuit. Um, and it turned out that the the judges in those cases said, yes, the members of these groups are also covered. And and these the the groups at the very least have taken this to mean all members, including members who are joining even today after the injunctions have been filed. And so they've all gained a bunch of members from this this court ruling, which means that people were paying at least some attention at least some people and that they they want uh, they didn't register. Perhaps they didn't register their guns and they want to be under the umbrella protection of these injunctions. And we've seen uh, the Second Amendment Foundation was the only one who's given given a number, but they said 20,000 people joined hmm. in the last. It's only been a week since hmm. these injunctions went into effect and a thousand of those were life members. Um GOA and great for a membership drive. Yeah. Right? I mean, they're, and they're all, you know, telling people how FPC mm-hmm. changed their whole uh, structure of how, of who counts as a member, which I would imagine expanded the numbers pretty broadly. They haven't, and they haven't said how many, the other groups haven't said how many GOI claims to have millions of members. They don't say exactly how many. Um, so we don't have full insight here, but I think what's clear from the evidence is that these groups are growing because of this injunction. And it's, I mean, it's kind of a, a big political um, blunder in that sense for Biden. You know, you have this this order, along with his two other executive orders in this area uh, that he's defended, being blocked by the courts is unconstitutional or likely unconstitutional at the very least. And and he's driving people to gun control group to gun rights groups. Yeah, the Streisand effect by calling attention to the issue, uh, you end up calling attention to something you don't want. I, I wonder how many people. I wonder by the way, this has done something for the popularity of pistol braces, um, where the idea that oh well, if you know if, if they're trying to get rid of this, I want to get my hands on it, right? If it, you know, yeah. uh, the first thing is you get a rush That's to a good that. Question. Then 
uh, oh, if being a member of that group might have me as part of the lawsuit and would have me effectively covered under the injunction, well, then I'd better get my name on that list. So, you know, this is an interesting uh, uh, unexpected benefit of that, that, uh, you know, I, look, I, I, I can't figure out. Well, OK. I think it's safe to say that if the administration woke up every morning and they really their two goals were I want to stop crime, you know, involving guns and I want to stop mass shootings. They wouldn't go about things the way they do. What they, you know, every morning they wake up and they kind of want to have, no, I got to placate gun control activists and I got to placate people who see this issue very, very differently from the mainstream. And how do I make them happy? How do I get them off my case? How do I, how do I convince them that I'm doing a good enough job that I deserve a second term? And I think that's the animating spirit of a lot of their decision making. And as a result of it, it probably marches them into some box canyons sometimes. Of, of yeah. you know doing things that are counterproductive and doing things that uh, don't get them the results that they want, but they feel like they have to fight because there's an audience out there that wants to see them fight, even if the odds of victory in courts are not particularly good. Yeah, I think that's a big driver, right? I mean, they're they're just kind of doing everything they think they could possibly get away with, even if they don't actually get away with that mm -hmm. stuff. Uh, it's sort of similar to the student loan. Yeah. Uh, we're going to do this until the Supreme Court stops us. Yeah, it's kind right. of, you know. Um, now, you know, they have, I will say that they've at least stayed in the gray areas, the things that were kind of already being considered mm -hmm. as potential moves by the by ATF leadership. You know, they tried to do the pistol brace ban under the Trump administration as well, um, but uh, that got spiked right. It was right at the very end of uh, the Trump administration. But um, so, you know, the, these are, they're sort of the limits of the gray areas. There's not much more out there. I've heard of any real um, ideas for what he could, how he could go even further than he already has. And what he's already done is, is ending up getting blocked by the courts anyway. But, but, you know, speaking of that, you know, this idea that he has to do it to try and serve his uh, political interests and his supporters uh, in the gun control groups, is that working politically? You know, obviously you're saying it's not working practically, right? We still have lots of, uh, we've got terrible uh, gun murder rates. It's falling now, thankfully, but it's still elevated compared to what it was pre-pandemic. And, um, you know, it, it's still bad. The mass shooting rate, uh, regardless of which uh, count you look at, and we've obviously talked at length on the podcast before about the pros and cons of each different count, but they're all saying this year is the worst uh, th so thus far that we've ever seen. So he hasn't delivered any you know, change or improvement on that. Um, and if you look at his his approval rating on guns in particular, it's really bad. It's at like 30 percent in the most recent CNN poll. And I believe uh, AP poll both had him way, way down and about 10 points lower than his overall approval rating. So, you know, politically speaking, has any of this really worked? Uh, not really. Um, and I think your your assessment is accurate there. Uh, when we look at the, you know, Pew, Gallup, uh, other institutions ask people, you know, what, do you, what are your top priorities? What is the biggest problem facing the country? Guns rarely, or, or you know, is gun control is very rarely or, or rarely at the top. And if you conduct the interview in the aftermath of a mass shooting, it'll jump up a bit. Um, yep. It's about the mid-level. Economy is almost always the top one. Uh, I mean, I guess, you know, during, you know, shortly after 9-11, terrorism and stuff like that. But in the absence of some 
dramatic, unexpected foreign threat or high gas. If, if there's not something else going on, gun, con- you know, gun control, mass shooting guns, et cetera, can get up there uh, to about mid-level. But if it's not been a mass shooting in a recently, it drops down to, you know, one, two, three percent, something like that. Um, so you're, you're talking about what is normally a niche issue. And in fact, I think the entire the public's general perception of gun laws, I think, is entirely dependent on whether there's been a mass shooting lately and how bad it was. Um, if there's something really god awful like Las Vegas or Stoneman Douglas or down in Florida or, you know, Sandy Hook, then it's front and center in the public consciousness. And people think about it a lot. Um, that got awful July 4th shooting at, uh, in, in Illinois last year. Right. Um, but I also think that, you know, when you look at how when people are approving of the job Biden is doing, well, the pro gun control crowd probably are going to say oops, a decent number are going to say, no, I'm not happy because the mass shootings are happening and Joe Biden hasn't banned guns yet. Um, like their, their expectations are pretty unrealistic, but they are what they are. And there's like, you know, well, why, why hasn't he stopped it yet? He, we, we have a democratic president. We had a democratic, uh, house for a while. We had a democratic Senate. Why didn't they ban the guns and stop these bad things from happening? Right. As we discussed, there's enormous distrust on within the gun owning community, second amendment supporters, most uh, right of center, Republicans, conservatives, groups like that. So they're not approving. So out of that 30% that are approving of the job who are, uh, that Biden is doing on guns, I don't want to say who are these people, because obviously they exist. Obviously, they're not a truly obscure minority. But I do kind of wonder if these are general Democrats whose reflex is to say, oh, yeah, Biden's doing a good job uh, and that there's not. An, and then if you ask them, why do you think he's doing a good job on guns? Maybe they'd mention the pistol brace. I, I, I'm skeptical that they would be pointing to specific actions he's taken. I think it's because yeah. when there's a mass shooting, he issues a statement saying how terrible it is and it's time for us to close the gun show loophole or ban assault weapons or any of the usual, you know, mantras and, and you know, policy proposals he puts out there. I, I think the, you know, there are a bunch of Democrats who like that and say, yes, good for you, Joe Biden. That's what we should say in times like this. And thoughts and prayers aren't enough and all that kind of stuff. But I think there's also a chunk of, you know, gun control activists out there who say, well, you haven't done it, Joe Biden. And the Second Amendment still exists. And you're I'm, I'm mad as hell about that. And so I don't expect, uh, for Biden's numbers to go up in that category, there would have to be a long stretch without mass shootings. And unfortunately, you know, I'd love to see that happen, and God, God willing. But unfortunately, the country has a lot of nut jobs. And unfortunately, those nut jobs, uh, in you know, too many cases, can figure out a way to get their hands on a gun. And they believe their way to make an impact on this world is to go out in a blaze of glory of, you know, trying to kill as many people as possible. Hmm. Uh, and, and Happy Thursday, see, everybody. <laughs> um, uh, uh, so, you know, you said that uh, the only way you see his numbers going up is, you know, uh, I would assume general decline in, in yeah. violence and and then also coupled with a decline in, in mass shootings. But uh, do you see other ways that his approval could go down? I mean, do you think this pistol brace uh, thing is going to meaningfully affect his his poll numbers I mean, he's presumably it pisses off a lot of uh gun owners although pr- i would assume they perhaps already disapprove of him i i don't know if i mean yeah like the you know, things like this will irritate gun owners who are already disinclined to like him um and so maybe that prevents them from giving him the benefit of the doubt on any other issue i, I think what's probably more likely is that look joe biden is 80 years old uh, he recently fell when he was giving a speech at the Naval Academy. Thank God he was okay. But if you t- you listen to focus groups, you talk to Democrats. The Democrats who don't like Joe Biden or who aren't approving of the job he's doing 
will say he's old. He seems tired. He seems ineffective. He seems, you know, they, they probably still feel uh, good old Joe. He's built up a lot of goodwill over the last <clears throat> five decades in, uh, in public life, but that they just see him as just the job is beyond him. Um, and people like me have been beating the drum relentlessly on the fact that he doesn't do events before 10 a.m. He doesn't do a lot of events after 3, 3 p.m. Um, and he doesn't do events on weekends. And, you know, once in a while, rarely. Okay, so you have a circumstance in which he's really effectively functioning as a part-time president, at least in his uh, public appearances. Um, I have a very hard time believing that when we can't see Joe Biden, he is sharp as a tack and he's full of energy and he's, you know, jumping around doing cartwheels or anything like that. You know, I think what we see is what we get. And so I think if, God forbid, there are more mass shootings or just a perception of higher rates of crime with guns or just a general sense of government ineffectiveness, I think that sticks to Biden and makes people think that, you know, boy, I really liked him as vice president. And, you know, he seems like a real nice guy, but he just isn't he just can't get the job done anymore. And I think right. that is, you know, where his numbers could go even further. And if, God forbid, he falls off the stage or has some other serious incident that leaves him in rough shape, um, maybe you have people give up on him. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I think there's ways his, his general approval could continue to down. Although I do I do wonder if he might be nearing the bottom, uh, you know, if if nothing, uh, you know, radically changes, which obviously that's the life and the politics, things tend to radically change before, mm. especially between now and, and when the next election actually is, which is like another, you know, year and a half. But um, it, it, there do seem to be reasons to think that his numbers could go, that this might be a bottom point for him because he's uh, assuming he doesn't deteriorate further physically um, or in his you know, public appearances or, or what have you. Uh, there's, I think, good reason to, to imagine that he could see a rallying effect from at least Democrats as you approach mm -hmm. closer to the election. I mean, that, that tends to be the case, right? Like, yeah, uh, you know. the incumbent presidents, you know, people get, they're judging him by how things are going and they don't think things are going great right now. But once he has an opponent, they'll be judging him. Uh, you not doesn't completely go away that it's still, he's still a president. He has to prove that he deserves reelection, but he's going to be put it up against somebody else. And in, Right now, that looks like it's probably going to be Donald Trump, who we just beat in the last election and who's deeply unpopular um, uh, to the same point that Biden himself, you know, is. And presumably that'll cause some sort of rallying back towards Biden. Right. I mean, is that crazy to think or is that? No, actually, no that's that's very reasonable, Stephen. Um, yeah. Even before the 2020 election, one of Biden's favorite slogans or sayings was, ah, don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative. And hmm. um that's a good line. Uh, it's a good line, although if you think about it for even more than a millisecond, it, it's a cop out. It's an excuse. Yes. Nobody, nobody's sure. asking you to be the almighty. We're asking you to right. not suck. All right. That's it. Gets, you know, there is this. You know, what it is, though, is like, you know, oh, you know, you may think I'm doing a really lousy job. But how about that maniac over there? Right. He's even worse. Right. And, you know, right, and that, people, that's probably what his campaign's going to be. Right. If it yeah, is and that's that worked in 2020. Uh, I don't know yeah. how it will play in 2024. I think his job is tougher if it's not Trump and if it's DeSantis or somebody else, and preferably somebody who's not in their 70s. And right. Yeah, because Trump be, kind of takes away the age right? thing to yeah. some degree. Um, um, it's, but, it's possible but that on the alternative will go badly. You know, go ahead, yeah. Right. But, 
But what about on gun policy in particular? Obviously, uh-huh. whoever gets the Republican nomination, looking at where these uh-huh. guys are running right now, they're in a they're fairly uh, to, far to the right of Biden, at least. Um, uh, and many of them are trying to run to the right of Trump in particular um, to try and you know uh, have some you know show some uh, distance between themselves and Trump, and at least on policy levels, you see that a lot with DeSantis. You've seen it with um, uh, you know, Pence. And it's interesting, uh, that you, you're getting this fight between them, between, especially DeSantis now overtly coming out and attacking Biden, uh, Trump as, you know, kind of a gun grabber. I think that was literally the title of one of their, mm. his super PACs attack ads because of the comments that he had made about, um, red flag laws and wanting to take guns first and do have due process second. And he did the bump stock ban. And so DeSantis is to the right of him. Um, you know, how do these Republicans you think stack up in a general election against Biden? Hmm. Um, so when I, I'm thinking back, cause you were at the, uh, uh, the NRA convention in Louisville, Kentucky, where the NRA endorsed Trump back in 2016, right? Okay. Yep. Now Trump in his, one of his books and at previous times in his life had made comments indicating that he was, you know, pro gun control or at minimum open to certain types of gun control. And right. we kind of wondered going there, like, well, how's the, you know, looks Trump's the nominee. How's the, is the NRA going to be able to, you know, make peace with him? And not only did they make peace with him, they, they fully embraced him. They endorsed him. And um, I, I remember in Trump's acceptance speech in Louisville, he said something like, you know, my son, Donald, he's got so many. He's, he's really got too many, I think, you know, and you could just kind of like, you could see the, you know, that was not, that's not usually the line you see in front of the NRA annual meeting in front of all these gun owners who don't believe there's such a thing as having too many guns. Um, yeah. But the crowd, you know, just kind of sat on its hands for that point. Otherwise, was enthusiastically supportive of Trump. I think that crowd is a fan of And they Trump. still are. Yeah. Oh, right? you know, and by, and the, you the, the most recent one. Um, just about every uh, NRA convention that I've been to since 2016, when Trump has been in attendance, there's, he's been extremely warmly received. Now, I'll point out at... Uh, in Houston two years ago, the crowd was a little bit smaller. And I kind of wonder if you go to an NRA annual meeting, you've had a chance to see Trump in 2016, 2017, 2018, 2019. It was canceled in 2020. They didn't mm-hmm. do it in 2021 either, right? So 2022. And then this, so I wonder if like at some point it becomes less of a draw. You've had your chance to see him and stuff like that. But by and large, Maybe. this is a pro-Trump crowd uh, yeah. at these events. I mean, I and, don't think that Trump will have any problem getting the sort of grassroots gun rights people yeah, out yeah. to support him if he's yeah. a nominee, frankly. Yeah. Uh, but um, I, and I don't think that DeSantis or uh, other Republicans would either. I guess the question is, uh, you know, would would Biden be able to bring back these Democrats who are unhappy about his gun policy? Because it's mm-hmm. very unlikely he's going to pass some sort of huge gun yeah. control bill between now and the next election. Yeah. But I also wonder, like, is that going to actually keep Democrats from the polls who are unhappy about his gun policy? Biden Biden will be able to say to any frustrated Democrat who's for whom gun control is the preeminent issue. Well, what are you going to do? Vote for Trump or vote for DeSantis? Are you going to stay? I'm the only option you've got. It's conceivable. The Green Party will have some nominee. I don't know who it's going to be. I don't envision many Democrats registering a protest vote. I think Trump and DeSantis frightened them so much mm. on a variety of issues, not just gun issues. Right. Um, Although I, I guess that, that kind of brings us to mm-hmm. uh, one uh, one recent development that happened mm-hmm. just today as we're recording this on, on Thursday. Um, California Governor mm. Newsom 
has now announced a, a initiative to amend the Constitution, the 28th Amendment, uh, to partially repeal the Second Amendment effectively. He yeah. wants to institute four policies, um, a total ban on guns for anyone under 21, a uh, mandatory waiting periods of some length. He doesn't specify that in the announcement video. Um, universal background checks, and then uh, a so-called assault weapons ban. So like AR-15s, AK-47s, mm -hmm. firearms of that nature, presumably, although again, doesn't explicitly define what he means. Um, this is an odd thing to do as a random act as governor of California, right? Uh, mm -hmm. And it's, it sort of seems to imply that perhaps uh, there's a national component to this. I mean, a constitutional yeah, yeah. amendment is a national campaign. That is not mm -hmm. something you do from inside oh, it, of California. And that video features Ron DeSantis and features Greg mm -hmm. Abbott, the governor of Texas and stuff. Yeah. Uh, the group is called Campaign for Democracy and totally not a presidential campaign. Wink, right. wink. You know, um, it's, you almost envision Gavin Newsom having this big red button. And that if, God forbid, Joe Biden falls off that falls down the stairs of Air Force One and has a concussion and he's completely incapable, he's like the water, he's like the backup quarterback warming up on the sidelines. He is totally ready. Like, I'm not saying I want to be the nominee, Democrats, yeah, but if God forbid imagine. you need somebody to step in, I'm here. Oh, who's that Kamala Harris? I've never heard of her. You know, um, actually, I guess that's my big question is yeah. because like, it's hard. It's hard to look at this. One, I guess, to just address the practical thing, because this is a stunt. Yeah. Like, let's just be totally yeah. frank about it. There's zero chance that this has of even getting uh, proposed, because you uh -huh. need two thirds of states to propose something yeah. like this, which is not going to happen. I mean, let's just the solvents ban by itself. Ten states have that, uh -huh. um, which is not if, if my math is right. That doesn't equal two thirds of the uh -huh. state. So uh, even the other uh, policies that. Probably they would need another 23 or 24 states. They got a long ways to go. Yeah. <laughs> Almost half It's not even yeah. close. And that's yeah. just to propose it. You need three-fifths yeah. to yeah. ratify it. So there's literally no chance this has of going anywhere, especially in the, our modern mm -hmm. era of extremely polarized uh, you know, politics yeah. where the, I, I couldn't see any red state voting to even – but you know, it just, it's yeah. just not a possibility. Um, yeah. So so that's – you know, just to get the practical discussion mm -hmm. of it out of the way. There's no – this is a purely political thing. Yeah. And is it to set up a fallback campaign, a shadow campaign? Like, okay, Biden's not going to be able to go. Uh, like, I'll, I'll take his place. Or is he actually going to jump in to be an actual contender against Biden as a primary candidate? Well, for what it's worth, the beginning of the, shortly after the midterms, uh, Gavin Newsom called up Biden and said he was not interested in running for president in 2024, which I think takes it off the table, uh, Stephen, because as we all know, that? Gavin Newsom wouldn't lie. <laughs> that's that's no be so unlike him. Yeah. No um, politician has ever misled about their intentions for running for higher office. This guy banged his his top staffers' wives. Okay, like mm. you can trust him about as far as you can throw. But I, I assume he look he's looking at this. But I think he's also reading the tea leaves. And there are two things that are obviously true, and that you cannot say if you're a Democrat. One is Joe Biden is 80 years old. He will be turn 82 shortly after Election Day 2024, which means he would be 86. If he served a full, full two full terms, he's not full, serving a full two a full two a full two 
terms. It's 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 like really hard to see based on his condition now how he's going to be five and a half years from now, right? And the second thing is we know that there are almost no Democrats who have faith that it, Kamala Harris, if she were on top of the ticket, would beat either Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis. The way we know this is not is that we haven't seen a single major Democratic official or liberal columnist come out and say, Biden should announce he's serving one term and Kamala Harris should be the Democratic nominee. If they believe she could win, they would be saying that. They aren't saying that. That is an indicator that they don't think she can win. Everybody's Democrats have decided their best bet is to push all their chips onto the 80-year-old Joe Biden and hope for the best. I think Gavin Newsom looks at that, can see the absurdity of that for all of you know, and he can say, all right, you know, I'm a much better candidate. I have a huge fundraising network. I'm younger. I'm more energetic. I've done more for progressives. I'm not, I, I don't babble the way uh, Kamala Harris does. Although I will, I will observe, I think it was Jeff Blahar, my colleague at National Review, who observed Gavin Newsom looks like a villain from Robocop. <laughs> he's slicked back hair. You just know he is planning to take over. He's got control and he will crush you and Robocop once and for all. Um, he just gives off this, you know, 80s corporate villain vibes. Um, yeah. Well, I don't know but, that he's a better candidate anyway. I mean, he's better on the age and vitality yeah. stuff, obviously, because um, basically everyone is. But um yeah, but he fulfills progressive But he's, he's pretty far left. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, no, that's the thing. The thing. He's governor yeah. of California. Biden, Biden, you know, obviously you can make an argument about how he's actually governed, but how he's perceived generally yeah. as a more as, as a more moderate guy, although yeah. on guns, clearly yeah. he it's yeah. interesting because on a lot of stuff he tries to push the more moderate idea that he's like a deal maker and he can work with Republicans. You know, he did the the yeah. he didn't do a good job of it, but he did the debt ceiling stuff and he's had He's had different negotiations here. And that's the message he tries to put yeah. out, except Biden on is, guns where yeah. he keeps pushing for the most uh, aggressive policy possible, which is. Yeah, Biden band, got so. a re largely undeserved reputation as a centrist because he was yeah. always at the center of the Democratic Party. Um, sure. That, that's that's where he was really a you know, the centrist between whoever was most rightward within the party and whoever was most leftward in the party. And he wanted to slap backs so and everybody would get along. He was never yeah. in the center of the actual full ideological spectrum of the country. Sure. But, you know, that still puts him in a better spot than Newsom, I would think. Probably. But like, I think Newsom, I think a lot of people. Although on guns, I mean, they only, mm -hmm. they're both pretty close. The, yeah. I guess the, there the differentiator is yeah, now that yeah, Newsom yeah. is saying he wants to amend yeah. the Constitution. Yeah. Uh, and I also should say, by the way, I actually find, I was talking on one of my other podcasts uh, earlier today. This is something of a win for the right. This is something of a win for Second Amendment enthusiasts, even though they may not feel like it, because Gavin Newsom is acknowledging, A, the Constitution exists, B, the Second Amendment exists, and C, the Second Amendment, as it is currently interpreted by the Constitution, is not compatible with four of his favorite gun control proposals, and that the only way to, he can get what he wants is by amending the Constitution. We've been telling the left to say, if you don't like the Second Amendment, repeal it. Uh, for a long time. And this is a, a pretty dramatic step in that direction. So I think by, this is going to, you know, as you said, there's no way he gets the states to sign on to this. But I think there's kind of a very useful, you know, there's some, there's a win in that they for a long time, they've always said, no, 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 no. Our proposals are completely consistent with the Second Amendment because it still protects hunting, which demonstrates they haven't read the Second Amendment. Um, and that this is a representation, kind of an acknowledgement of, OK, you're right. Hmm. The what we want to do is going to get struck down by the courts as unconstitutional because it effectively nullifies the Second Amendment. And that, I think, for us is a, a big a big rhetorical and symbolic win, although it leaves a fight of defeating this effort, which is, you know, still to come. Yeah.
Yeah, I think that's a fair point. Well, we really appreciate you coming back on the show and giving us some insight into uh, the politics of all this, uh, as you are one of my favorite political writers out there. So I would recommend that people go and check out your work uh, anytime they can. Can you uh, give them a little bit of uh, insight as to how to do that? Sure. Uh, at National Review, uh, I write the Morning Jolt newsletter Monday through Friday. Uh, also contribute to the corner there, sometimes articles. In fact, I have an article in the upcoming issue of National Review all about fatherhood, uh, kind of coming up for our Father's Day issue. Uh, at the Washington Post, I write roughly once a week on the op-ed page. Sometimes it's in the print version, sometimes it's just online. Uh, and I'm on Twitter at Jim Garrity, spending way too much time and getting irritated by morons. <laughs> where we all uh yes yeah, so please people go ahead and follow him and sign up for uh the jolts and read everything that the man writes he's uh, very smart so uh, we'll have to have you on again in the future too Stephen. thank you and thank you for everything you do to provide what in my mind is one of the most complete detailed accurate and uh just clear thinking and well-assessed coverage of gun policy issues you'll find anywhere Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Speaking of which, we're going to head over to our news update right now. All right, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for the news update. I'm contributing writer Jake Fogelman, joined, of course, by Reload founder Stephen Gutowski. How are you doing this week, Steve? I'm doing pretty good. I, uh, as those watching on YouTube can see, I'm slightly more dressed up than usual. Not TV level dressed up, just, uh, you know, collared shirt and pants because I'm going to the Capitol Hill Club for a speech with the Public Interest Fellowship later today. So I'm looking forward to that, talking to some of those fellows and uh, getting into some interesting policy discussions. It'll be exciting and fun, I think. Are you going to be talking about the reporting here at the Reload or what's the kind of the theme of the of the talk? Yeah, it's, it's going to be basically about gun policy in the United States and sort of the latest developments. Um, from this, that whole 28th Amendment thing that Jim and I talked about briefly on the last segment uh, to, you know, Bruin and the effects of Bruin and, and, and stuff like that. So it should be pretty interesting. Uh, and then I also have a CNN interview with Jim Acosta I'm scheduled to do on Saturday to also talk about the, the 28th Amendment thing. <laughs> it's, it's get, you know, it's sort of designed to get attention and it's, it's right. definitely getting some attention. It's a little bit overshadowed. Uh, by all of the Trump indictment, of course, but um, uh, you know it's still it's still <clears throat> certainly meeting the goal of getting a lot of uh, attention to the California governor. So I'll be talking about that um, on CNN on Saturday. I don't have a time yet, but by the time this show comes out, anyway, it'll already happen. Unfortunately, sure. uh, unless I get bumped, that's also another. Uh, another reality of being a cable news contributor is, you know, other stories happen. And sometimes that means your your segment doesn't happen. <laughs> yeah, especially when Trump's but, in the news. <laughs> yeah, we'll try to um, we'll try to link to it if, uh, if we're able to sort of a random grab bag as to whether or not they actually post the the videos uh, online to, for me to share. So hopefully they will this time. Uh and uh, yeah, I think it'll be good. It was a long segment last time I was on Jim's show, so I enjoyed that. You get a little more space to breathe and talk. Um, so I'm looking forward to it. And I'm looking forward to this this speech or Q&A today as well. I like talking to, to the students and the, the younger 
the younger people, they always have interesting questions, I think. Yeah, it's always good to, to spread the word about gun policy and get more people interested in, in following this stuff seriously. So that should be yeah. good. Absolutely. So what do we got in terms of news this week, though? Yeah, so we actually had a very big news week. Uh, a lot of big stories. Um, some of the, the ones that we've hit that we've covered is in one hand, we have a, a new gun control push in multiple states. So in yep. Connecticut, their governor just signed a bill that's honestly one of the largest kind of omnibus gun control bills I've seen in a while. It does everything from ban open carry to limit handgun purchases to just three a month. It expands the state's so-called assault weapon ban. It expands the state's so-called ghost gun ban. It's just, you know, a, a grab bag palooza of different uh, gun control policies. And that's now law in Connecticut. Yeah, kind of a weird one there with the handgun limit, because usually they limit you to one a month. This one's right. three a month. I, I don't know. I, I imagine they'll probably bring that down to one a month at some point if it withstands constitutional Scrutiny, which I think all of these measures are going to go up against, uh, and not all of them are going to survive, I would imagine. But yeah, there was also, what, Hawaii had a, had a new law as well? That's right. So Hawaii has officially joined the ranks of states that have passed a Bruin response bill, uh, which of course is aimed at the Supreme Court's decision to strike down may issue concealed carry permitting, which Hawaii mm. was one. Uh, so they now have basically the same thing that you know, New York, New Jersey, Maryland have, where broad swaths of the state are off limits to concealed carry. It's basically functionally impossible to carry except for to quote uh, New York governor Hochul, some streets, yes, a, few, <laughs> um, a few sidewalks, right? Yeah. Uh, the trend is continuing. This is what they're all doing. It's kind of, kind of surprising. Honestly, it's not what I expected these states to do in the wake of Bruin because they're, I mean, they're basically just passing unconstitutional laws again. They're going to set up another court fight at, at the Supreme Court. I mean, you've already had New York and New Jersey's laws found unconstitutional by multiple federal judges. And um, that doesn't seem like it's going to change as this goes up the line. I mean, maybe the, some of these appellate courts will will uphold these laws, but I don't think the Supreme Court is going to uh, once it makes it up there. So it's kind of a it's interesting approach because it seems more likely to end in new pro-gun precedents than anything else, honestly. Yeah, I think that's true, especially because this is the very last case that the Supreme Court handled was this very issue. So I think they're, mm -hmm. these states are tempting fate, if uh, to put it lightly. Yeah, but I guess maybe the politics are there for them. This is perhaps what their voters want. They don't really care yeah. if they lose in court again. I, I don't know. It's uh, interesting. It's not usually what you see from, you see it sometimes, especially in like cities, like Philadelphia is constantly Right. Passing unconstitutional laws that violate state uh, policy. They just had their knife ban struck down um, as well, I think, this week. So, uh, you know, there there are pockets where this happens, but usually not at the state level. I mean, if you D.C. years ago, a couple of years ago, not that long ago, they had a May issue gun carry law after their no carry law was struck down. They put a May issue law in similar to the ones that got struck down in Bruin, but it got struck down a couple of years before Bruin happened in Ren v. DC and DC's response bill to that wasn't, um, it wasn't like these Bruin response bills, you know, it was more along the lines of, all right, we're going to try and pass as strict a law as we can, uh, without running afoul of the courts again. Right. And so instead of taking that approach, these, these States have just said, 
screw it. We're going <laughs> to we're just going to make it illegal to carry a gun anywhere. It's a bold strategy. We'll see if that <clears throat> if that pays off for him. Uh, but, but speaking of courts, uh, on the flip side, uh, I wrote a piece about uh, Washington State and their assault weapon ban. Um, we officially have our first ruling uh, in the challenges to that ban, and a federal judge actually upheld it. He denied an injunction request against that ban, yeah. um, which is a big blow to gun rights advocates, I think. Yeah, it is. Um, you know, this is this is important to to know. Like, these are not all victories. Um, for, for gun rights advocates. And, and I think it's, it's, uh, equally important to understand, you know, why that's happening. And in, in this case, uh, there's sort of a very clear template for upholding these hardware bans that we've seen developed. This is basically the same exact logic that was used in Delaware. Um, when, when a federal judge there refused to issue an injunction and in Oregon, uh, when a federal judge there refused to issue an injunction against um, the magazine ban that they had passed. And so, uh, you know, it, it's interesting to watch how these legal arguments are unfolding. Uh, and and they're already coalescing, coalescing around this particular uh, argument, which basically boils down to, um, you know, these weapons, whether it's magazines that hold more than 10 rounds or 15, you know, there's sort of magazine limits are all over the place throughout the states, but, um, or so-called assault weapons, which again, the definition of an assault weapon changes from state to state. Uh, it's a pretty nebulous term, but the idea is that they are modern developments that uh, didn't exist in the founding era and that they've led to modern problems, which the courts always identify as mass shootings. And uh, therefore you can um, reason by analogy. So you sort of get a little more leeway to uh, do the Bruin analysis with, and then they just use essentially mostly 19th and even sometimes 20th century laws as the analogies for these modern bands. And they're mostly things like Bowie knife bands, billy club bands, um, and those are mostly focused on carrying of billy billy clubs or or, or knives, and so uh, or pistol pocket pistol bands. And um, they say that those are those demonstrate uh, you know the same sort of regulation from uh, historical tradition. Now, I, you know, I think there's a lot of weak points to these arguments, but that is what they've sort of settled on. And that is what you saw in this Washington case. That's right. Yeah. I think you're starting to see a bifurcation in the application of the Bruin test, depending on whether or not a judge wants to uphold a ban or wants to strike down a ban. Whereas yeah. the, the folks that strike down the ban will limit their scope of, of historical inquiry to the time of the founding and perhaps the 14th Amendment when it mm -hmm. got applied to the states. <clears throat> and then these judges that want to uphold these bans as valid have a much broader view of what constitutes a historical tradition. So if, just for example, in this Washington case, the judge cited the 1994 assault weapon ban and said that was applicable right. to the to the, the history right. tradition. Historical of a, tradition from the 90s. Right. So not even 30 years ago counts as historical tradition. So it's it's just a it's wild to see how this is developing where the they're just so far apart in terms of what constitutes the scope of the Bruin review. Yeah, and I I think that that makes it particularly vulnerable on appeal, uh, but it's something where th this is happening in circuits that are probably uh, going to have appellate courts that are pretty um, 
sympathetic towards government restrictions on firearms, and they may well adopt the exact same reasoning. In fact, I don't really see any other uh, legal reasoning being applied to uphold these modern hardware bans anywhere else. So this is kind of what they landed on at this point. And um, I don't know that that is something the Supreme Court is going to abide by because it doesn't really match what Bruin says to do. I mean, first of all, Bruin talks about the how and why have to be the same. You know, how they regulated guns and why they did it. The goals are supposed to be, you know, similar. Right. And a and also it's supposed to be, the relevant period is supposed to be closer to the founding of the country. when Because you're trying to determine, the whole idea of this analysis is that you're trying to determine the scope and breadth of the Second Amendment from when it was enacted. And so you're trying to use basically what the founding generation did in terms of gun regulation as your guide to what is possible under the Second Amendment. That's how they've set this up. And so if you start using the 94 assault weapons ban, well, that doesn't really tell you anything about how the founding generation viewed the Second Amendment. Right. Um, and even getting out to uh, you know, Civil War era doesn't help much in that task either. Now, obviously, the 14th Amendment kind of complicates things because that is how they have applied the Second Amendment to the states. Um, and so there's some question as to whether uh, the view, you know, the regulations from that period around the 14th Amendment should also come into play because there were more of them, uh, mostly on carrying guns. Right. Um, and so, but that's the other thing, like you can't, you're really not supposed to use a carry ban as justification for a wholesale uh, ownership ban or, or sales ban because they're different, different things. Right. But, right. but that's what the courts are going to have to work out. And then I imagine the Supreme court's going to have to probably clarify some of these things at some point, whether it's, you know, a, a pretty straightforward couple page opinion, like they did in, uh, um, Satano on stun guns after Heller, or if they have to take a whole nother case, we'll, we'll see. Yeah. And one thing that could complicate them taking another case, at least soon, is the main story we're going to talk about today is something that you reported on. It's sort of the latest development in the criminal justice implications of Bruin. Uh, we have a, an appellate court ruling on nonviolent felons. So if you want to tell us about what happened in that case. Yeah, it's interesting because this case applies, it's a criminal case, and it applies specifically to the defendant who actually didn't commit a felony. So it's probably the easiest way to explain it in a headline is calling it nonviolent felons, because that's the people who are going to be implicated, I think, by this ruling. But technically, this guy committed a misdemeanor. Uh, he His name is Range, or his last name's Range. He lied on an application for food stamps in uh, Pennsylvania in the 90s, uh, in 1995, and pled guilty to doing that. It was a misdemeanor. However, it was a misdemeanor that carried a potential sentence of up to five years in prison. And so under federal law, <clears throat> anything that's a felony that's punishable by more than a year in prison makes you prohibited for life. Or a misdemeanor that's punishable by more than two years in prison makes you a prohibited person for life. You can't buy guns or possess them. And the 
this guy, even though he never actually served any jail time at all, he got three years of probation and he had to pay uh, less than $3,000 in fines and restitution. Um, so was, I think most people would look at this as a fairly minor crime. He wasn't, the problem was that he wasn't poor enough to qualify for the food stamps. He was like on the edge of qualifying, but he didn't actually qualify. And so they lied about how much he made and that's what his crime was. And <clears throat> he hasn't committed any other serious crimes since then. Um, I think he got caught fishing without a license once, but, uh, uh, and he has some parking tickets as well, but they, uh, they ruled that this was not a crime that could be used to prohibit somebody from owning guns for the rest of their life. That's, that was the bottom line ruling. There wasn't a historical tradition for that. Um, they found that that range is part of the people who are protected in the second amendment. That's been an ongoing, um, legal discussion about how to deal with felon in possession um, uh, crimes, because some people argue that, uh, you know, the Supreme Court has talked a lot about law abiding people being protected by the Second Amendment. And so what exactly does that mean? Who are the people that the Second Amendment protects? Um, you know, does that include people convicted of serious crimes? And, and in this case, they sort of they didn't really generalize a ton. They kind of took Range's specific situation and just said, this guy is clearly not, uh, you know, a serious criminal. He's clearly part of the people. And there's no history of, of banning someone like this from owning guns from the, for the rest of their lives. Um, so that's where it came down. And, you know, the implications of that, I think, are that most nonviolent felons are going to fall into a similar category of people as range. Yeah. Uh, even though that the ruling doesn't specifically say that, that the implication of the ruling, I think it is, is that basically. And that's why I think that this is really interesting because it could prompt the Supreme court to step in because of that, what you said that they didn't specify what exactly makes you not part of the people based on offense, because we now have a circuit split uh, on this question. The eighth circuit, uh, took up a, a similar nonviolent felony case, and they refused to kind of parse out the difference between violent and nonviolent in order to uphold the felon in possession ban. Whereas this, yeah. as you said, this is just an as applied challenge. They didn't strike down the law. They just said it doesn't apply to this particular guy. But they right. did in this case separate him from, you know, this nebulous category of felon by saying, well, his offense, it's nonviolent. We, that doesn't count as, you know, you, you shouldn't be disarmed for that. And so you could see if, if this does become a, a persistent challenge by folks that have felony or felony equivalent offenses challenging their, mm -hmm. their conviction, you might see the Supreme Court have to step in to settle, you know, who is the people, yep. what, what counts as the people. Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, this, this could be another, I mean, there's a lot that's piled up now that are right. sort of ripe for Supreme Court review already. You know, I think Rahimi and the Fifth Circuit, which is about the domestic violence restraining orders. Um, that's probably the most likely to get heard next. Uh, I think they're going to consider that in this upcoming uh, conference here, whether or not to take up that case. Yep. Um, and <clears throat> because that's a federal law, uh, similar to this, I guess, actually, uh, yep. and that this is, this is, they didn't, it's a little different because as you said, it's more of an as applied situation. They didn't strike down the entire um, section of federal law that, that deals with this, but they just said in this guy's case, it doesn't work. And so, yeah, you, you know, you, 
you got a lot of litigation over the federal um, felon in possession laws at this point, or uh, prohibited persons lists. And <clears throat> yeah, there has been disagreement. So um, perhaps this is where we'll start. You know, I know most gun rights advocates want the court to start taking up assault weapons bans or, or um, magazine limits or you know, some of these other uh, maybe gun licensing, purchase purchase uh, permits, those sorts of things. But it seems more likely that they're going to have to deal with these prohibited persons um, categories before they go to all that stuff. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I've been I've been noticing this too. As as uh, as soon as Bruin was handed down and the new test group was created, gun rights advocates immediately got excited about what does this mean for assault weapon bans or you know magazine bans, all the the policy stuff. And it's just funny to see that it's actually become more of a pileup of criminal justice type cases where it's yeah. trying to flush out 922G, which is the Gun Control Act provision that, you know, governs who can and can't own firearms. And it's yep. just become almost, you know, entirely focused on that stuff. So that, I think that is an interesting point. Yeah. And honestly, there's more bipartisan agreement on that area. I know not necessarily in our sort of... Uh, everyday politics in terms of what you see on the news or politicians talking about this stuff, but in the courts, uh, you know, this, this ruling was um, I think it was 11 to four and it had a number of democratic appointees were yeah. in the majority. Um, and so uh, you had Obama appointee, you had a Biden appointee and a, Cl and a Clinton appointee in there as well. So, um, you know, I think there is some, movement from the left on Bruin noticing it as kind of a criminal justice reform um, element that they could use this to try and go after some of the more um, burdensome uh, prohibited person categories and the way that they're often used uh, disproportionately against minorities is a common you know complaint about a lot of laws that sort of gets ignored when it comes to gun laws um, uh, but I, maybe they're starting to change their mind on this, or maybe they maybe they feel like they don't have another option anyway, so they might as well try to um, use this in the way that they like. Um, sort of. That's the other thing about this, the Twenty Eighth Amendment situation with Newsom is you know it, it kind of is a um, admission that you can't necessarily do these things without a constitutional amendment. Right. I mean, I think certainly the the way the wind is blowing for assault weapons bans and age restrictions um, for adults under 21. I don't think that those are going to remain constitutional under Bruin. Like, I think that's it might not happen next month or even next year, but it certainly seems that the direction that's headed is that age restrictions and um <coughs> And assault weapons bans are going to be unconstitutional. And um, I don't know, it feels like Gavin Newsom maybe agrees with that. I mean, it's not part of his pitch. Like he's saying that they want to make these nationwide policies and that's the only way you could uh, do it or and and have it last is by passing constitutional amendment. But, but um, it also feels like perhaps an admission that a lot of the, these policies that um, – Democrats like Gavin Newsom like probably aren't compatible with the Bruin standard and the Second Amendment. I think it's an interesting point. Yeah, it is a bit of a, a tacit, 
you know, hey, this isn't going to fly. So we do actually need to change the Constitution. So, yeah. So it's something to watch for sure. And I think that you see a similar effect in this uh, nonviolent compelling case out yep. of, uh, uh, you know, out of the circuit. It's because it's sort of an admission or a recognition that Bruin isn't going away. Um, but maybe there's some stuff that the left likes about it, too. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I think that's that's all we've got for you this week. Uh, if you like our reporting and you want to help spread the word, please share this episode with your friends and family and everyone you meet uh, as you walk down the street. Um, leave a rating if you could. That always helps boost the algorithmic value of our content. <laughs> um, and leave a comment on YouTube. Well, we try to respond to those when we can. Uh, if you want to do more to support The Reload, you can buy a membership. That is how we actually keep this place running. And um, that is how we fund the entire operation. We have no big corporate backers. We have no secret investors. Uh, this is run off of memberships and the dues that our members pay. Of course, you will not just be supporting our work, but you will also get exclusive access to hundreds of pieces of member-only content well, generally, most of our analysis is in there. Some, uh, you know, the the reporting uh, remains free, but the analysis is where you have to buy a membership to get access. And I think it's worth every penny you'll pay for it. Uh, so you're not just supporting what we're doing; you're also getting value. I think. And in keeping with that, you get this podcast a day before everyone else too. And the ability to come on the show if you want for a member segment, one of my favorite parts of the show. So uh, if you do want to come on the show as a member, just reply to your Sunday newsletter, which is also another member perk uh, that you get. Um, and let me know and we'll have you on. Anyway, that's it for this week. We will see you guys again this week.